interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt Kelly and I take a deep dive into leadership failures at Fort Hood, which have led to literally 40 years of sexual harassment and discrimination. And we're joined by special guest, Diane St. Ives, who has personal experience in these matters. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Last week was our 200th anniversary show, and we did nothing for that. So we thought we'd uh, jam and ram things up this week as we have a special guest, Diane St. Ives, who is a lawyer in Houston, who has got a great story that's going to add to this podcast. Diane and I have been friends for a long time, and I'm thrilled. uh, We're actually both thrilled to have you, Diane. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Uh, All of this came about because of a blog post Matt wrote um, last week called Leadership Failures at Fort Hood. Matt, you want to set the stage for us? Yeah, sure, Tom. I think uh, what has happened at Fort Hood is fascinating from an ethics, compliance, and corporate culture perspective, and it is going to be well worth any corporate compliance officer's time to uh, give this some thought. So here's the specific news. Uh, What happened was a special commission uh, to investigate leadership failures at Fort Hood down in Texas. They published a report on December 8th about leadership failures there. And as a result of that report, 14 senior officers in the U.S. Army were either relieved of duty and command or suspended from their posts. Uh, As Army disciplinary actions go, uh, this was a very high profile, very big action. And I think now the question, of course, is why did this commission exist at all? What was going on at Fort Hood? Uh, It was the commission was there because Fort Hood, which, as I recall, is the, I think, second largest military base in the country, 36,000 soldiers. Fort Hood had been plagued with high rates of sexual assault and other crimes for years. Uh, This all came to a head tragically earlier this year when a private at Fort Hood named Vanessa Guillen, she disappeared from the base in April. It later came to light that she had been murdered by a fellow soldier who was taken into custody for that crime and who then somehow eluded military police and escaped custody and killed himself. Um, Very awful, high-profile tragedy that happened there. That prompted the Pentagon to appoint this special commission, which had been charged with this question. What was wrong at Fort Hood, which had a program in place for years to encourage people to report allegations of sexual assault, to report other types of misconduct, to try and write the corporate culture down there, um, had that in place at least since the mid-2000s. And yet still, that program, known as the SHARP program, never changed a terrible corporate culture at Fort Hood, where abuse and retaliation were rampant all the time. So this is why I wrote about it. So we have a large organization with a problematic culture, senior leaders who were saying the right things about wanting to change the culture, 
where they had a de facto compliance program in place, known as the SHARP program, to try and fix the culture. They had all of that in place, and yet the culture never got better, and employee morale and cynicism were rampant and terrible at Fort Hood. So, does this sort of thing sound familiar to corporate compliance officers? Um, that's where this post came from. It's just, it is a fascinating glimpse as to how senior leaders play such a crucial role in setting corporate culture, including the idea that if they are checked out of what's going on, they set a terrible corporate culture that really you can't fix no matter how hard you might try. And that's apparently what was going on at Fort Hood. So we can dive into it from there. But um, that, that's what's going on. Dan, I thought uh, we might ask you uh, if you might tell a little bit about your military background and professional background and your story around what happened to you at Fort Hood. Well, I joined the military in 1979, about a month after the Women's Army Corps was dissolved and the services were completely integrated. And they really didn't know what to do with us, but um, so it was kind of a work in progress. I ended up at Fort Hood after basic training at Fort Leonard Wood Language School at Monterey, California, and uh, Intel School at Goodfellow Air Force Base. Um, get to Fort Hood, and I'm working, I'm stationed at the 375th Army Security Agency at West Fort Hood, and it was mostly a, I don't know, it was the last Army Security Agency that the military had, and we went to the field uh, frequently, and I was a private E2 at the time. I was 19 years old and um, got out to the field. And because I was an intel officer and I was a radio intercept operator, we had these huts called a Muskie Temp, MSQTMP, that sat on the back of a deuce and a half truck. And they were just huts. And you went in there and there were radios and other systems and they're not a big space. And so one evening uh, while we were in the field, I chose that where I was going to sleep. And I had... That's where I was going to stay. I didn't want to stay in a tent full of other soldiers. So sometime during the middle of the night, I hear some ruckus outside. And some of the soldiers that had been taken into to Colleen to go to school that night had obviously been drinking and came back to the field drunk. And I asked them if they could please be quiet or move elsewhere. That's all. And then I closed the door and went back to sleep. Um, next thing I know, in walks my squad leader, um, Staff Sergeant Fitzpatrick. And I didn't, I thought I was actually, when he walked in, that I was going to get kicked out. You got to go be with the other soldiers. And instead, he laid down next to me on the floor of the Muskie Temp. And I don't remember what he said. I don't remember any of his words. I just remember hearing his zipper get pulled down. I remember the smell of the alcohol. I remember being scared to death. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to respond. Uh, the culture in the military is you don't disrespect your seniors. You don't, you don't do that. And I don't know exactly what I said, um, but I told him, no, so, no, no, don't, this isn't going to happen. No, I will call Lana. And Lana Culbertson was a, another fellow Ohioan who was a staff sergeant and she was tough as nails. And he knew he didn't want that to happen. Um, and it was probably 15 minutes that this went on and he finally left. And I don't know, again, I don't know what he said. I don't remember. So we get fast forward. Nothing's ever said. I never tell anybody. There's no means for me to do this. There's no way for me to report him. 
So I get um, fast forward a couple months and um, I am at my at the office and I come back to the unit and Staff Sergeant Fitzpatrick is standing there by my barracks. And I have my hands in my pocket, which is what you're not supposed to do. So he says, St. Ives, get your hands out of your pocket. So I do, and I walk up to him. He goes, you were going to get promoted today, but now you're not. And he blamed it on my room that the sergeant major had come through. My room was in disarray because I was actually packing to leave to go to NSA for a temporary assignment. He said, you're not getting promoted. And the smug look on his face told me exactly why I wasn't getting promoted. So shortly before I left for NSA, um, there was a formation, we had a company formation, and there was some intimation of sexual harassment in the military that was coming down. This was 1979. And so my two sergeants said, Every, all the men turn around. The men turned around. They said, and he says, if any of you women have been sexually harassed or assaulted or abused or anything like that, I want you to raise your hand. So my hand shook at my side and I threw it in the air. And they pulled me out of formation. They took me over to where my, the three men that were gathered, I guess the sergeant major and a couple other sergeants, and asked me what happened. And I told them what happened. Consequently, didn't hear anything back for a couple of weeks. And when they came back, they said, we investigated your claim and you're lying. And that was it. And that was all they did. And so I don't know whatever happened to Sergeant Fitzpatrick, but I know what happened to me is that 40 years later, I can still remember the smell of his breath. And the army is still talking about this. And that part of it, uh, last week when I heard the report, really angered me and I was resentful. I'm like, why are we still talking about this? And it is a it is a cultural issue in the military. It's a uh, don't ask, don't tell of a different nature. It comes from the top. It comes from I have gone so far as to believe that we need to desegregate the military, put the women in one unit and the men in another, because we can't coexist under the current circumstances that we have. Um, and so that's my story. That's how I got to here and. Um, I didn't talk about it for a very long time after that, but once I opened up, I learned to understand it wasn't my shame. It wasn't my fault. I was 19 years old. Diane, um, you have thought about this a lot and you shared some of those thoughts with me and, and one of your solutions or perhaps the, the solution you believe is really this segregation of men and women is is there really any anything yes. that can be done uh, to change this, or do you really believe the culture just can't change 40 years later? I don't know that the culture can change, Tom. I really, really don't. Um, because in 2013, there was a, I think she was a colonel or a lieutenant colonel testifying to Congress about having been sexually harassed in her work in the military. And as I'm watching her testify to Congress, and I feel what she's talking about, and I'm crying. Because here we are, how many years later, and nothing's been done. I don't know that we can change the culture. I don't know that um, allow men in the military to do the things that they do and get away with it. And these aren't necessarily psychotic people. These are not people that have things wrong with them. 
these are men who think they can get away with something and that they have like this pond of women to fish from every day. They will exercise their authority and they will exercise their control. They will exercise their rank. They will put you at risk for not, want, not being able to succeed in the military. So it's, it's about control. It's not about being able to ferret out the psychos. These people aren't crazy. The men that are doing this and undertaking this are not necessarily crazy. They're not necessarily of a, of a sick mindset. It's because they're allowed to do this. So can we do something to prevent this? I don't know. Are the military police officers doing it in their units? Very likely they are, the men. Very likely they are. Uh, so, you know, the, the women and the men are in the same barracks buildings. They're in the same, I worked in the motor pool most of my career. They're in the same motor pool. They're in this, they go to the field together. They go to war together. Um, women have worked hard for this right. And it's not an easy thing for me to say that that right should be able to be taken away from them. There are women that are very, very capable of fighting in combat and flying helicopters and and bombers and Blackhawks and, and all of that. They're very, very capable. But to be put themselves into this system where uh, they can suffer from rape and sexual assault and, and not know, right? Not have the tools to get out of it or to report it because there'll be retribution. Uh, so I don't know, Tom, I really don't. I have thought about this obviously for almost 40 years. And I have not come up with a solution other than separating men and women again. And that's wrong and that's not fair, but I don't know of a solution. And Matt and I deal generally in the corporate world, uh, but in your former life, you dealt with the national security of, of the United States. Yes. You're in the U.S. military. And would ha do performing that kind of segregation, would that um, hurt our military preparedness? Well, I think our, our military, it, would, it would, would hurt our military preparedness because there are women in positions that provide valuable resources to the intelligence community. Um, it would take those talents away from our government. But I think our national security is also at risk when we allow the men in the military to do what they're doing to sexually harass and assault and victimize women every single day in the Army or in the military. I was in the Army. Matt, you have any questions for Diane? I do. You know, so Diane, I was taking some notes, and very early on you said something along the lines of um, you, the junior officer, you know, you're, you're trained to di not disrespect senior executives or senior officers. <clears throat> and I was writing down really what would senior officers, what about senior officers basically disrespecting the juniors because they're not providing this sort of environment that you could do your job? And I guess maybe my question is, you know, what would you like to have seen or to see today from senior officers in the military to try and support people. You had said something else about, you know, you wish that uh, the women in the military had the tools to be able to report assault uh, appropriately and safely, which I think is something that should be provided. But it just seems like such a nice turn of phrase to say you are trained not to disrespect the senior officers. And right away, my first thought was, well, what about them disrespecting the juniors by not giving them these tools and the corporate culture to thrive. 
I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts along those lines, but I mean, that's that's really what stood out to me as I'm listening to your story and I'm reading the Fort Hood report. And it's just it's an awful mess of leadership failure there. It it truly is a mess of leadership. And I think that the women that are in leadership are caught in the same sort of maze um, that I was in because they want to advance the women who want careers in the military. If you this is a black mark on your record. And fortunately, after my stint at NSA that year, I got to go, the Army sent me back to language school in Monterey, um, where I was learning Russian. And then I came back and I ended up back at Fort Hood. But I lived off base and and I didn't experience um, my second round at Fort Hood. I heard of others that had experienced, but by that time, I was a non-commissioned officer. So I had, a, I had a different role. I played a different role. I was older. I was more mature. Um, and so the officers or the, the superiors are loath to believe us. They're loath. And it is, a, it is a disrespect. And so to have a channel of um, maybe an ombudsman or somebody that some sort of a system that takes these reports, special victims unit at Fort Hood. And I think that in the report, there was something about that, uh, developing a military style of that. But if you're going to put the people that are part of the problem into a special victims unit or into a a unit that's going to take care of these issues, you're defeating the the whole solution. Um, So I would... I would think that you would need to have some very talented and well-vetted souls to do that, to help to make the change. And you've got to hold people accountable. If you're not going to put, if you're not going to arrest them and punish them in the, under the UCMJ, there's no point in having any program. There's no consequence. Tom, if I can uh, just chime in a bit more here. So to Diane's point about not having properly trained investigators, that is exactly what the Fort Hood Commission report uh, spoke about, that they did not have uh, any trained investigators for the complexities and nuance of a sexual assault case. And while sexual assault is clearly the the lion's share of attention here, we should not forget they had many other criminal problems happening at Fort Hood where the uh, officers were not really equipped for that either. And I thought case in point was they apprehended the murder suspect for Vanessa Guillen. And then he basically, they left him alone in a room and he wandered off to go commit suicide. And like, you got to be kidding me. I, I'm not in law enforcement, but even I know that would be a very difficult, high risk sort of a person to have. And you need to pay close attention to where he is and what's going on. They failed in that. Uh, they had uh, cases of army soldiers who simply disappeared. Um, and originally, the Guillen case was treated as a disappearance. They didn't really have any training on what do you do with a soldier who has apparently gone AWOL. And then it looked like, no, they didn't go AWOL. They were somehow abducted or something. They didn't have people there. Um, But Tom, I wanted to read out one point that I thought really captured things about why you could have all the trappings of a compliance program and yet everything still sucks and nothing is changing. And it's all about the leadership taking things seriously. And I'm going to read out this line, which should resonate with lots of people, I suspect. The dearth of command emphasis on the SHARP program allowed form 
to pervasively supersede substance across the installation. The end result has been a sharp program that appeared to be compliant on the surface, but was hollow and lacking in leadership attention, day-to-day implementation, broad acceptance by enlisted soldiers, and full inculcation into the culture and character of the Fort Hood community. And folks listening here, like any of us, could say the same about anti-corruption in the corporate world or anti-harassment or so much more, because the senior executives always say, well, yeah, of course we're opposed to assault or corruption or whatever, and we have this fancy program. And then you ask the lower levels, do you really believe this? No, of course not. Well, who else knows that this isn't taken seriously? Well, everybody in the company knows this. That's exactly what was happening at Fort Hood as well. Um, And it really demonstrates how a lack of executive support, true enthusiastic support, gives you this make busy, look good compliance program on the surface. And yet when you peel that back, like there's nothing there. There's a bunch of incompetent, understaffed people uh, who might or might not be trying to do some compliance-ish sort of things, but nothing really happens. And the actual employees or the junior officers in this case, like they all know this is a bunch of malarkey and they should keep their mouths shut. That's exactly what was happening at Fort Hood 10 years ago, it was happening there this spring, apparently with happening with Diane's uh, experience there decades ago. It's just, it's a travesty about how poor leadership just leaves you going in circles and that's it. Diane, anything you'd like to add? Uh, The only thing I I would add, Tom, is that um, I recently had posted this story on Facebook in a uh, blog of some sort and someone asked me, Oh, 35 years later, and you're just now reporting this. We know it's not true. And so when people say, why didn't you report? That's why. That's why. And so I just encourage people to report, whether it was two hours ago or 20 years ago. We've got to keep the momentum. Women can't live like this anymore. We shouldn't have to. Diane, what I've taken away from from this podcast is that the basic tools that Matt and I write and talk about for a compliance program are equally valid in a military setting. And you talked about consequences for action, discipline if someone violates uh, the Uniform Military Code of Justice. You talked about having trained investigators. You had not just trained investigators, but investigators who are not part of the problem. You talked about a senior leadership that was committed to that and and communicated that commitment down with real consequences for officers who didn't also honor those commitments. And you talked about reviewing and assessing the program. So those are the basic things that uh, he and I talk about. And you really put, I thought, a, a pretty strong mark on why we need to continue to talk about these things. I wanted to, to thank you for having the courage to come on and tell your story. Thank you for asking, Tom. I really appreciate it. Matt, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, Diane. Thank you. Thanks. That ends this episode of uh, Compliance Into the Weeds. We look forward to visiting with you again. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Also, check out the show notes where I have additional resources available forms of blog posts written by Matt or myself. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds. 
Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and proud member of C-Suite Radio. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.